Let us pray. Heavenly Father, prepare us for your word. Pray, Lord, the Spirit would do a work in us that we would not uh, go away from your word unchanged, but we would be transformed and we would live in light of your holiness. We pray these things in your Son's name. Amen. You may be seated. So when you are with a dozen 10-year-old boys in a 500-square-foot cabin space for two weeks with some of them that have never been away from home for an extended period of time, you have to have a heart-to-heart about hygiene. (laughs) You just got to. Jimmy, I know you love Star Wars, but you cannot wear that Star Wars shirt every day that you're here at camp. Bobby, I know when you take a shower, you just want to be in and out, but you have to use soap. Tommy, I know you want to impress the girls, but you cannot pour cologne on yourself after your shower. You know, you might laugh, but as a college student, Counselor, those are hard conversations with 10-year-old boys. I love this Star Wars t-shirt. I hate taking a shower. What other attributes do I have to impress the ladies other than my Axe body spray? (laughs) You know, confrontational conversations can seem weird. How do we do them in the right way? And that was a question that I had to ask in this cabin. How do I maintain the peace and the good hygiene and smell of this 500 square foot space? You can imagine the dynamics doing this as a counselor for two week terms with adolescent boys. But imagine extrapolating this now with adults. Not just relationships for weeks, but for years in a close community. Not talking about hygiene, but talking about their jobs. So the same questions I have in this passage answers, how do I confront in the right manner? How do I not make the conversation awkward or weird? How do I maintain the peace and the purity of the church? See, this is what Paul is up against in Thessalonica. This is what he is going to talk to in this passage. So let's look together, shall we? 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 through 15. Please pay attention as we look at God's word. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right but to give you in, our, in ourselves an example to imitate. 
For when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. And as for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. The word of the Lord. For just joining us, we have been going through the letters to the Thessalonians. We have been in 1 Thessalonians and now in 2 Thessalonians. Our last week will be next week as we look at the doxology at the end of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. See, Paul is writing to a young community, a young church community that really is countercultural with those that are around them. They are in the midst of the Roman Empire in northern Greece, in this metropolitan city of Thessalonica. And here these people are not affirming the lordship of Caesar, but the lordship of Christ. And they're kind of become social outcasts because of that. They live a different sexual ethic. They love the poor and the oppressed and slaves. They are a community that just looks different. And it's been encouraging. The, ch- the church is growing. It's vibrant. And Paul, in, throughout 1 Thessalonians, encourages what God has been doing there. And he again encourages them. The second letter he writes, but there are still issues. In 2 Thessalonians, he picks out a new issue. One is the second coming of Christ. Some are teaching that Christ has already come back. In the second chapter, he speaks against that and encourages the people. But the second issue is an issue that he hit on in 1 Thessalonians, and now he has to bring up again. And the issue is these people's approach to work. Things are not changing in ways that he had taught them, they are continuing to live in a way that is not becoming of followers of Christ. You have to understand, these people, again, live in a culture that it thinks about work in a different way. One is this system of the patron-client privilege, kind of what it works like this, is there's a patron that people that are poor or people that need work or need money, they will go to these rich Roman citizens that lived in Thessalonica and they will speak their praises. They will go in the morning in front of their house and sing songs to them. They'll go to their parties that they throw and they'll talk them up. They'll go around their friends and advocate their politics. They'll go to the temple where they worship and worship their gods for them. If they do these things for these patrons, they will get paid. They will be supported. And that seems to be a thing that is happening around this church and some of the people in the church are doing it too. Part of the reason... Paul might be writing about it again. It says there's a famine in 51 AD that might have caused people, this is the only way to go. 
I'm going to have to do this to make it. So they continue in this patron-client relationship. And maybe some of the wealthier people, people in the church think, well, maybe that's how we treat the poor people in the church. What we do is we act like patrons and we just support them. And they might be doing that in the church. It really is a habit that they were familiar with. It's how they grew up. And it's sometimes just hard to fix when the pressure's on, that bad habit. If you've played basketball or, or sports where there's technical skills and you learned a bad habit about shooting a shot, passing a volleyball, hitting a double-hand forehand, whatever it might be, maybe you picked up some bad habits, your golf game. And when the pressure's on, at game time, you might go back to those bad habits, those ugly shots or whatever it might be. And Paul's saying, you're going back to your bad habits. I know it's hard to change when the pressure is on, but you have to work differently. See, Paul gives us some good advice here. How do you work through an issue that continues to be a problem in the church? How do you do that? That's what he's doing here. I think he does it in a couple ways. One he reiterates the principle, the theology, and two, he implements consequences, or maybe the dreaded word in, in church environments, church discipline. So let's look first at the theology of work, the purpose of work that Paul addresses. Verse six, look again. He kind of lays out his argument of the rest of the passage in this one verse. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brothers who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. I want to take a first look at this word, idleness. It seems to be in the NSV and the ESV, um, they have translated the Greek word into idleness. I can understand why they did that. As later in the passage, it's talking specifically about work. And it has this concept of people not being lazy or slothful, but working. But I do think that the word has a greater meaning and scope than just idleness. That the word might be better translated working in a disorderly manner or out of line with what was taught. It's not just laziness that is the issue, it's the wrong concept or view of work. See, many of these people might be working very hard for their patrons in celebrating them, but they're doing work in the wrong way. It's out of line of how you're supposed to look at work. So what is the right way to look at work? We've talked about this before as we looked at 1 Thessalonians, but I want to reiterate it again because, again, I think we go back to our bad shots when we think about work. Work is not a necessary evil. It's not something you just have to do. Work is not a directive from God in a fallen world. No, work came before the fall. Meaning, in the Garden of Eden, there was work. God's first directive to Adam is to name the animals, to care for the garden. The first job to us is to have dominion over what God has created. He created us 
in a perfect world for work. I've said this before, I'll say it again. I do believe we will be working in heaven. We will work there. It will be perfect work, but there will be work. I know that scares some of you, and that might be the correction that needs to happen in your shot. See, the result of the fall is this, that work can be a toil. It can be hard. That Genesis 3 talks about, you know, you work for bread and then you die, which is probably what Paul is talking about when he says, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. I don't think Paul is saying, don't give food to people that are in need or don't give food to people that, because of disability, can't work. He's saying, don't give people that are not willing to work these handouts, this full support over lots of periods of time. People have to be willing to work. And that is what Paul is correcting in this community. See, working for patrons is out of line with what the theology of work is. Why is it out of line? Because working for a patron says, my provider is this person. My provider is this resource. Versus saying, God is my provider. God has given me purpose. He has made me an image bearer. Meaning I have the attributes of God to have dominion, to work. God has given me a calling. My provider is not a person. My provider is not a government. My provider is not the church. My provider is God and he has made me with a purpose and a calling. I do think that many of us still live in this distorted view of work. We act like our provider is the man. <laughs> we work with bitterness and laziness because we say, oh, I just got to work for the man. I'm just punching the clock. I'm just getting the paycheck. I'm just working for the weekend. And instead of working unto the Lord, we work unto man. I don't care if you have your dream job. <laughs> I mean, some of you like have the job that you planned for your whole life. This is what I'm going to be. I wanted to be a major league baseball player. It didn't work out. But even in your dream job, your job can fall short. Some of you say, I'm retired, so I don't work anymore. I don't care if you're retired, you still have a calling. God has still called you to do something, to be his image bearer or whatever it might be in that season of life. Do you still work unto the Lord, not unto man? Here's some things to kind of point out to see if you are living that way or not. Paul points it out. He says, for we hear, in verse 11, for we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. See, these people are involved in things that are not their responsibility. 
they're getting involved in issues that don't revolve around what they are supposed to be doing in their call and their work. They're meddling in other people's areas of life they're not responsible for. Who knows, that might be the living vicariously through someone else because your job is so bad, so I want to be able to take control of something else. What does it look like to live that way? Gossip? Judgmentalism? Armchair philosophy? Over talk about politics or how you're going to solve the world even though you're never going to be in that position in the first place? That is being a busybody. You are not busy at what God has given you. You are so upset about where you are, you have to take control of other areas. Instead of living in the way that Paul encouraged you to live, to live quietly and to earn their own living. You see how this could be a bad model for the gospel to this community by acting in that way. Some of us might not react in being busybodies because of our frustration at work. We might react with escapism. The laziness or the slothfulness, the one aspect of that distortion of work, that idleness that is talked about. You know, I jam sometimes on video games about their problems of video games, the problems of alcohol. Listen, I drink. There's nothing wrong with having a beer, having some wine. I play video games. But I think the reason that many young men in their 20s, even men in their 30s, that spend hours upon hours on video games is because they are so upset about not being able to control their world, they have to control something. They are upset about where they are in life, in their job, and what God has called them to. So if I can't have some control there or some sense of responsibility there, I have to control something else. That's a distortion of work. Alcohol can be the same thing. An escape. An escape from what God has given you. And many people work hard during the week and then they say, well, I did all that so I can finally escape on the weekend. That's not the way that life works. It's not, you know, two separate things. It's all of life. Your work is your family. Your work is being at vocation. It is all of these things. Let's not distort what God has given us to do. Now, I can expect the pushback. You don't know what it's like to punch the clock at my job every week. You don't know what it's like to live under a load of laundry that I have to keep on doing every week. You don't know the colleagues that I have to put up with at my job. You don't have to deal with kids crying at night all the time and waking up and dealing with them. 
I have to cling to something. So I'll be a busybody other places. Something to find hope. I don't know if you ever heard of the Stockdale Paradox. In a book, Good to Great, it's mentioned. It's about Admiral Stockdale, who uh, was a prisoner of war in the Hanoi Hilton in um, Vietnam. And uh, after the war, he was a prisoner of war for many, many years there. And he writes about those who did not make it out of the Hanoi Hilton. Mostly they didn't make it because their mind just went and they gave up. And he talks about the mentality of those that made it and those that didn't. Stockdale said, those that didn't make it were those people that said, next Christmas, I'll be home in America. You know, in this amount of time, I'll be back. I'll be in this place. And then next Christmas came and they still weren't there. Next Christmas came, they still weren't there. And they just gave up hope. And then he said, the ones that did make it are the ones that didn't set timelines of it would be this next year or that next year or the grass is greener on their side. It was people that said, one day there will be justice and triumph and hope. I don't know when, but I know there will be justice for what I'm going through. Paul talks about this in Romans. The groaning of creation that happens when Christ breaks into this world. The groaning and longing for this world to be made renewed. That work will be redeemed. The hope might not come, I'll finally have the right job in one year. In two years, my right job will come. In five years, I'll finally have the promotion I need to be able to get the things I want. I think that will leave us discouraged. But instead, if we see one day, my work, my calling, my gifts will be perfect that they will be finally matched the way they are supposed to be. If I live like that, it will allow me to keep going even in the frustration of work now. You say, that's easy. Come on. Look at you Christians. You talk about hope, hope, hope. Come on, who can live like that? I wonder about Christ's job. Do you think his job was perfect? Oh, the disciples did what he wanted when he wanted, told them to do something? They did it? That the Pharisees changed when he told them to change? You think Christ had work frustrations? Do you not think he said to God, this, Father, I don't know if this is the way it was supposed to work out. This is frustrating. I think Gethsemane shows a little bit of that. But he still went on. He looked in hope. He submitted to his father, knowing that there, out of the work he did, would be redemption. 
Verse 13, as for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. I think Paul is talking about two things here. One, the weariness of work and jobs and idleness that they would keep on doing. This thing of working quietly, earning their own living, being able to be good models to the community, even amongst oppression. But I also think he's asking them not to grow weary in doing good in calling the rest of the community to a higher standard. See, it is easy in this passage to concentrate on the imperative of not being idle, not distorting work. But this passage also talks about calling people to account. This is the harder part of this passage, (laughs) truthfully. Work's hard, but calling people to accountability in our culture, I think, is even harder. Tommy, if you don't change your shirt, you can't eat next to us in the dining hall. Bobby, you don't shower, we're spraying you down with antibacterial stuff. Jimmy, you continue to put on too much cologne. You are not going to the dance. Again, we laugh about it in that circumstance, but how about telling people that when they're adults? Don't tell me what to do. I'm going to live my way. I'm going to do what I want to do. No one's going to infringe on my life. No one's going to tell me how I'm supposed to live, especially the church. They're not going to tell me how to live. See, when that starts happening, then it gets a little messy. And then the conversations can get a little awkward. So how do you do discipline? accountability well. I'm going to look at four things here, okay? That Paul shows us. One, we model and walk with people. We model how you're supposed to live and we walk with people. You see, Paul, in a major part of this thing, he says, you know, we labored. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. You know, they had a right, he says, to get paid for what they were doing as ministers of the gospel. They had a right to get a salary for what they were doing, but they didn't do it so that they would see the people in Thessalonica an example of how to work well. See, he doesn't ask them to do something he will not do himself. He models the life of Christ. He models obedience. He models holiness. And the thing is, he doesn't just move right away to church discipline. He doesn't say, okay, you're out. You're out of the community. No, he walks with them. He shows it to them. He sharpens them. You know, the first place of discipline in the church is being in relationship with one another. 
It's sharpening one another in the faith. It's a conversation at men's group or mom's ministry or community group or maybe a play date with a friend or a walk with someone else or shooting hoops afterwards. It's a conversation to say, this is the way that I live. And someone's saying, okay, you're struggling with this. What are some ways to work through this? And modeling people and sharpening people to live a different way so that the sin in people's lives does not run wild. That there's constant checks in working through things so the struggle does not become something that is just out of control. It's modeling and walking with people. Second, Paul doesn't act too quickly. He's talked about the issue in 1 Thessalonians about their idleness and not looking at work in the right way. They've continued in this pattern. He has taken an inventory of what's happening and now he is acting with discipline. I've warned you. I've been patient with you. But now there needs to be consequences to the actions that you're taking. He doesn't act too quickly. He takes inventory. But at the same time, doesn't mean he just pulls back and doesn't deal with it. He engages the problem. He engages it and has the conflict and conversation that needs to happen with these people. So number one, to model and walk with. Number two, not to act too quickly, but over time to act. And number three, to take a full orbed view of the gospel. See, if you do not call people to holiness in the church, you're not preaching the gospel. If you do not call people to holiness in the church, you're not preaching the gospel. You want to talk about someone that was very frustrated with this? It was a guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Here these Germans were saying, we're Christians and we're following Hitler. And he said, this cannot be. How can you call yourself a follower of Christ and act in this way? Encourage you, The Cost of Discipleship is a great book. It talks on this manner. And this is what Bonhoeffer calls cheap grace. This is what he says about cheap grace. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ. Living in incarnate Jesus Christ. It costs our God something. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Now, can I say, you say, well, grace is free. It's a free gift of God. Absolutely. Grace is freely given by Christ to those who repent and believe in him. Yet costly grace 
recognize that nothing can be cheap to us which is costly to God. Christ's death on the cross for our sins shows how costly grace is to God. We are therefore called to continual repentance at the foot of the cross. When we assume God's grace towards us as a general principle, when we no longer turn away from our sins, when we detach forgiveness from the call to obedience, that is when we have fallen victim to cheap grace. If you are someone that does not repent, does not try to live in holiness, I wonder if you realize what Christ has given to you. So I'm just going to jam for a second. Just just deal with this, okay? (laughs) You know, people loved that sermon by Bishop Curry yesterday. He talked about the civil rights movement. He talked about love. And he talked about what love creates. A beautiful community. And how love through Martin Luther King Jr. showed a community that should be. See, love is calling us to holiness. His message yesterday was saying, this is the way it should be. This is the way a community should be. This is what love points towards. And if you're sitting there in the crowd at the royal wedding or watching it on TV and you go, yes, love, 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 and you do not realize what love looks like and what it takes in your life to repent and live in light of that love, you do not get the message. You do not understand what's being preached. You can say, oh, it's charismatic. It's beautiful. Man, that guy can preach. But he's preaching to your heart. He's preaching to you. And he's saying, if you want to live in light of that love, then live under the authority of the love giver. No wonder people are rolling their eyes. No wonder people have their mouths open. No wonder people are like, how dare you call me to that? Because that's what Christ calls us to. See, this had, a, this had a point, right? This is under discipline. <laughs> the community of love is supposed to look a certain way. And if we let people sin and don't do anything about it, what would people say? Why do I want to join that community? Why would I be a part of these people? They don't live any differently than anyone else. And number four, church discipline and accountability is not about your superiority, but it's about Christ's superiority. You see, all in that culture, all in that time, the way to look at your enemies or those that are not acting the way you want to is to call them out in vindictiveness or retribution or you're going to get what's coming to you. Because you're acting in a way you're not supposed to. 
But that's not the way that he talks about it. Verse 15, do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Do you know how different that view of discipline and accountability is than what the culture says? That view says this, brother, I would be in the same place you are if it was not for the grace of God. You are not my enemy. You are someone I'm not against. I empathize with you. I sympathize with you. I know I would be in the same place you are if it was not for God's grace upon me. And then your hope is that that brother would repent and be restored. You know, here in verse, verse 14, people have a major problem with, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. See, you have that hard conversation. You back away from that person. That person says, what are you doing? And you say, I'm doing this because I love you and I care for you. You cannot continue to live this way. You have to live differently. I'm not doing this because I'm superior, that I'm pious, look at me. I'm doing this because I want you to be restored to Christ. He is superior. Yes, it's hard. But it's for the good. See, I think church discipline is doing the right thing even if it doesn't work out. Which many times it doesn't. Trust me, I've been around a lot of cases and a lot of issues. And you pursue it, you love them, you're patient, you go through all of these steps. You weep, which our elders have for people. We weep for people that they would repent. We have hard conversations with them. We do all the steps and still it doesn't work out in our eyes. But I think it does in the Lord's for his glory. I had a case in Colorado. Family, woman with, and a man, woman had, they had five boys. She left her husband to go to another man. We talked with her, we sent her letters, we called her, we had other people come to her, we provided counseling, we did all the steps, all of these things. And we hoped and hoped that there would be restoration, that there would be healing, and all the time I was looking for restoration in her, right? I want her to be restored, I want her to repent, I want her to change. But I think I wasn't looking at the right thing. You see, 
The real change happened in him. He saw our patience towards her, our love towards his ex-wife. He saw all the things that we showed towards her. And instead of reacting to his ex-wife with bitterness and malice and all of those things and just taking it out on the boys, he saw what we did through church discipline and he said, wow, look how they acted. That three years ago, he got remarried. He has two more boys through this wife, so seven boys total. And his boys are wonderful boys that love the Lord, that love their dad, that even treat their mom, that abandon them with love and grace. You see, we could have gone two ways. We could have just ignored it and said, oh, it's not a big deal, and that would have made him angry. Or we could have just gone with guns blazing, and that could have been the way he treated. But we acted with love. That is full grace. And the things that I was looking for and trying to think there would be, it would work out, worked out in a way that I didn't even realize. God was still glorified even in that hard situation. Maybe that's you and work that the conversation needs to happen with you. Maybe it's you in a relationship. Maybe it's you with hidden sin. I don't know. I would hope that you would go to the Lord, I would hope that you would seek help in the community of Christ together. That you would be refined by the work of the Spirit and changed by Him. You know, this is coming forward in a community that says, I abide by this. I trust in Christ. I need him. I understand that I have not arrived and I need to continue to be sanctified. This isn't a Presbyterian table. This isn't an Emmaus Road table. This is a table for those that say, I need Christ in my life. And maybe... You are someone, because your attitude in work right now or other things in your life that you might need to do some business with God this morning. It says before you come to the table that you should do some introspection. That you should do some, God, where am I at? Because you know what it says? If I take this in an unworthy manner, if I take this with having a grudge against my brother or my sister or with sin that has not been repented of and confessed of, I drink judgment upon myself. You might say, well, that doesn't sound like a very nice word. That's not very love-filled. That's not very grace-filled. No, I think that is grace-filled and love-filled. That I would say, you need to be changed by the gospel in Christ. 
And if you don't, he's, he will do it. <laughs> Trust me. He will do it. And sometimes he does it through the table. So I pray that you might do business with God this morning and prepare your hearts. So what we're going to do is we're going to come forward. There's bread. On, you can go on this side or this side. There's bread. You can take gluten-free wafers. There's white grape juice on the outside, red wine in the middle. You take your elements and then you return back to your seats and then we all partake together um, after we've all see, seated. Um, there's a little uh, call and response. We'll do that. If you have children that aren't taking communion, we'd love to just be able to pray for them this morning and do that. You know, again, if you have questions about this or I don't know, or maybe there's some things that you're just not really confessing, then I encourage you not to come forward. There's some prayers right here you can pray. Um, you can do that to prepare yourself. Let's do it. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Lift them up to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord. It is right to give God thanks and praise. Blessed are you, Lord God, King of the universe. Blessed you are, ruler of all being, God from the beginning and God in the end. You are Lord of Blessed are you, O Father, that on the day of Pentecost, Christ poured out the fire of his Spirit on his disciples. We bless you that even in our broken and sinful state, we have Blessed are you, O Father, for sending your Spirit to us today to kindle faith and lead us into all truth, working in the church to make us faithful disciples and empowering us to proclaim the living Christ to all people. Amen. So um, I'm going to have uh, Gary share. Where's Gary? If Gary would help me too this morning and Perry and, and Mark to come forward, that would be great.